This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Ben Yoskovitz. Ben is the founding partner of Highline Beta. Highline Beta is a hybrid corporate venture studio and VC firm that evolves the traditional management consulting model to put things into action, not to strategize in the clouds. In this episode, we discuss how to participate strategically in the tech ecosystem, what makes Highline Beta unique, how large companies should think about innovation and corporate venture capital, the recipe and ingredients they use to build companies, and why great companies can be built with solo and multi-founder teams. Please enjoy my conversation with Ben Yaskovitz. Ben, I'd really like to, you have this really long, interesting experience in the tech space. And I'd like to know kind of like that pre-go instant, if you were to sum up all that experience, let's include like university, everything there. What are some takeaways and lessons from that time that you maybe have stuck with you to this date? Yeah, that was a long, uh, just, just to be clear from go instant backwards. You know, I started my first company in 1996 and I joined go instant in 2011, 2012, that range. So that's, that's quite a few years. So a lot, a lot of lessons, uh, a few things, I think, um, one is I fell into entrepreneurship somewhat by accident. Uh, I was going to McGill, uh, met a few guys there who were trying to build a web services business. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I can help with that. So one of the lessons for me is just being open to opportunity. And I know that sounds a little bit cheesy, but it, it's it's real. It just are, if you just make yourself available, meet new people, connect, participate in events or in the local community, you might be surprised who you run into that, you know, might not be that day, but a year later, two years later, whatever the case may be, all of a sudden comes back to you and says, oh, I've got an idea. I want to start something. How could you help me with this? So being open to stuff, really important. I think the the extension to that is participating in the local ecosystem. Uh, 
participate in the, the global startup or tech ecosystem as well, of course, but the local one is where you're most likely going to meet your co-founder. It's most likely where you're going to raise your first uh, check, you know, from an angel investor. So I think participation is a big part of it. Uh, so those are sort of the more positive lessons. The one negative one I'll say is I spent many years, I'm going to say wasting time, you know, got comfortable, um, had a kid, which was great. Um, you know, was making a decent living and I was still quite young at the time, uh, doing what I was doing, but it was, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years of my life kind of on a treadmill. And then I realized, oh, geez, I, I could be doing this thing forever and doing okay. But that was not why, you know, settling was not part of the plan. And so I think that's, that's one of the real lessons for me. And so after that, um, you know, uh, year standout jobs, year one labs into go instant and beyond. It's not that I was trying to do things in a year or two years and then, and then move to the next thing. It was just never being comfortable and then waking up and saying, well, I probably could have accomplished more. So those are the things I, I think about when you, you know, I think back to those, those years. I want to like circle back to what you're talking about, like of being active in the community and things you can do there. Is there certain areas where people should be focused on? Like maybe, hey, I have a particular interest in products. I'm going to join like product meetups. Do you think people can be a bit strategic with participating in the ecosystem? Kind of having, okay, this is roughly where I want to end up. So I should be maybe hanging out over here or over there and helping there. Do you find there's a strategy or is it really just kind of, hey, like this is the most exciting opportunity I can find and I should kind of chase that? No, I think there is a strategy because you can find yourself. There's the, the, the risk or the downside to participation in the, in the, let's say, the local tech ecosystem, wherever you are, is you wake up one day and realize you went to a bunch of cool parties, but didn't actually get anything done. And that's not, that's not useful. Uh, can feel useful because you're, you're busy and you're meeting people. So I do think you have to be strategic about it. What I actually did, and this is now 2006, and I spent a long period of my time sort of one, you know, sort of settling and getting comfy and realizing, oh, shoot, I, I've wasted a lot of time here. I actually started blogging. Now, that was 2006. Blogging was relatively new. Uh, now it's newsletters. It's other things. People still blog. But I started blogging and I was actually doing that to connect um, outside of the local ecosystem. So I was in Montreal at the time, relatively small sort of startup ecosystem, but I started blogging as a way of just networking with people. And what it did was actually help me network with people locally, started to see the content say, oh, you know, I like that post, we should meet up. And out of that, I actually got connected to Austin Hill um, and, then, and then Fred No, who ended up being my co-founders for Standout Jobs. So I, I was being strategic about it. Because again, you don't want to just go to a bunch of random things just to be there. And, and you, you do see people like that. They're at every single event. They're, they're participating all the time, every party. That's not maybe the most useful um, thing to be doing. So I do think you have to be more strategic about it, figure out what you're trying to achieve. But you also don't rush those things, right? So I want to go start a company. I need a co-founder. Fantastic. You don't go meet every person. Are you my co-founder? Are you my co that's not how dating works. So you do have to be strategic about that as well and not try to rush. I think serendipity is a big part of how interesting things do happen in the tech ecosystem. With Go Instant and the acquisition by kind of Salesforce there, and we had Jevin McDonald on a previous episode, was that kind of your first experience going through an acquisition? Had you done them before? in your career? And I guess, you know, if it was your first or one of your first, what was that experience like? So it wasn't the first, but it was by far the biggest acquisition. I had, I had actually, a company I had started in 1996, actually, we were aqua hired, very different experience. Uh, and then I had invested in a company called, uh, local mind. Uh, and, um, you know, they were acquired by Airbnb. And so uh, now I wasn't the founder of that company, but we were an investor through year one labs. We had helped incubate that company. So I had a little bit of experience, 
but nothing like um, the experience with Go Instant. I joined the company, uh, and then we were acquired about a year later. So it's fairly fast, and the company had only been around for a couple of years, right? So pretty early stage company, new company, uh, you know, not an insignificant acquisition, uh, you know, from a from a financial perspective, and so that was a pretty crazy experience overall. I love to circle back to you know, kind of coming into the tech scene in 1996 and all that experience since then, and you know, we're at 2023 now. What have you learned? Like, what has that experience been like over the number of years? How is the tech scene? Like, you're in Montreal, now you're in Toronto. How have you seen the ecosystem shift and change? And obviously, you can just look at it and see that it's much bigger and there's much more going on. But is there other fundamental shifts going on as well? Like, are people's ambitions bigger? Like, I want to start bigger companies. Hey, that's more realistic for that to happen. I guess aside for things just being bigger, is there any other major changes you've seen? Without question, bigger. I think you're seeing it's it is a more sophisticated ecosystem. There's no question about that. There's still gaps, of course, and there always are. Uh, you know, one of the things that stands out for me is I think universities. So in 1996. You know, there wasn't much going on from an entrepreneurial perspective in universities to the same extent that you have now. And so I think that's a big one. So what that tells me is there's more opportunity for younger people to start companies. I think that's a good thing. There's a lot more content. So that's local, but also global. Uh, you want to understand how to run a company, how to leverage new, you know, methodologies like lean startup that now is very accessible to everybody or almost everybody. Uh, back in 1996, there, I mean, the internet barely existed. So there wasn't a whole lot of how could I learn from so-and-so about something? Uh, I think, um, you know, we, we've had more people exit their businesses, of course, uh, make money and then contribute back as angel investors and mentors. And then that feeds, the machine as well. So for me, I, I think a lot of it comes down to um, the volume and the potential for more creation of companies, which I believe we just, we always need more of. Uh, and, you know, now that the, the ecosystem is bigger and maybe a little bit more mature and more sophisticated, it affords people more of an opportunity to start companies, which I think is a good thing. And I think it might be an interesting segue in, you know, you're seeing more people start companies and I think that ties nicely into Highline Beta. What is Highline Beta? Where did that start? I know you mentioned kind of like year one there and you were doing some investing and you had been part of early stage companies. How did the idea for Highline Beta come together and what is it? It's sort of amazing, actually. Uh, not that long ago, we passed seven years, which is, is honestly very shocking. Not that I thought we wouldn't survive. But I can't believe it's been seven years. That's that's really what I'm trying to say. So um, Highline Beta is a venture studio and venture capital fund. Uh, we have sort of two businesses that are interconnected. One is a, uh, a corporate consulting business. So we work with big companies. We help them uh, figure out their innovation goals and mandate. A lot of that leads to them building new things in-house. Sometimes that leads to them partnering with startups, and we help facilitate that. Sometimes it leads to the creation of new companies, new startups, what we call spin-outs. And that connects to the, to the second part of Highlight Beta, which is our venture studio, where we're building companies from scratch with founders. Um, and, then it, and then investing in those businesses. And so we're working at the very, very earliest stages possible. We're most often working with founders before they've actually incorporated their businesses. And then the venture studio works with those founders for, call it six to nine months, and helps them go from zero to one, build the MVP, go to market, get traction, recruit a team, raise additional capital, all the things that you would need uh, to go from zero to one. That's what Highlight Beta is trying to do. We started the company because my co-founder, Marcus Daniels, and I really enjoy and believe in investing at the super early stages. But we didn't want to be exclusively investors. We really do love building businesses as well. 
Um, I, I think of myself as a product person, so I like getting my hands dirty in product. Uh, I like getting my hands dirty and helping them raise capital. So I, I, I love that zero to one phase, but not just investing in it, actually helping with it. And so the combination of building and funding is really how venture studios have emerged. And then the corporate angle for us is because we see the potential of connecting startups with corporates more effectively. And if you can do that well, there is an opportunity for the corporate to get value, for the startup to get value. And then, you know, again, for us as investors for to get a return from that experience as well. So it's connecting all of those dots um, and, and try to build great companies. From the corporate angle, you know, I've seen there's been a lot of companies try corporate venture to various levels of success, most likely not successful versus successful. I guess, how does your model like shift that dynamic from like a corporate venture model to, you know, just kind of maybe access to companies or like, like that kind of relationship? I'm just always curious of like a space that companies usually get wrong from a venture side. So is it something that they should outsource or like kind of like that partnership with Highline? My take is uh, big companies have to, and they have the ability to do everything. Uh, what that means is they should be building stuff in-house because if you outsource all of innovation, uh, particularly more sort of growth innovation or stuff further from the core, you're really, you're really losing out. So you need to, big companies need to be able to build things in-house, but they can't build everything. So they need to acquire some startups. And so they should be doing M&A. They should also be doing, or they can be doing investing in companies and partnering. So you can, you know, the build by partner, and then we add this other element to it, which is co-create or spin out. So in my view, big companies should be doing all of those things. Where I think they struggle is they often do these things in silos. So you have your CBC or your corporate venture capital group, and their job is to invest in, in businesses. And they go and they do that. You have your M&A team and their job is to acquire businesses. You have your internal innovation team and their job is to build stuff in-house. And they don't collaborate as much as you might think do. So what we try to do with Highlight Beta is say, look, all of those tools are valid tools in the toolbox. I'm not sure even which one we should be using today. Why don't we just go back to basics, figure out what the real opportunity or problem is, and then figure out which tool in the toolbox to use and so then you might decide, well, for this particular opportunity, for a number of reasons, you should build it in-house. For this opportunity, we think you should acquire this startup. Don't build it. There's a great company out here that does that thing already. You should buy that. This new opportunity, there is no startup doing it. You shouldn't do it in-house. What if we created a new startup and spun it out? And so that's, I think, getting alignment strategically within big companies to break down the silos that they have is a complicated exercise. When companies do get there, they start to see success from that. The increased chance of being successful when, you know, like let's just take some random example. Let's say you had a FinTech product through the, the, the venture studio and you had a relationship with RBC and they could instantly bounce ideas off each other or like get them as a beta client. And like how, I don't know if you have data or just like, you know, like, how much increase of success, the likelihood of success, how much does that increase having a model like that versus, you know, maybe there's just this random startup and they're trying to cold call and reach out to those people at RBC? I don't have any data on it, but, you know, our thesis, you know, our thesis is that if you can connect those dots, it does, it does work. It can accelerate the growth of the startup. There's risks and challenges in doing it. You know, little startup gets completely consumed by big companies' demands. And, you know, that's a problem. Sometimes big companies, you know, smush little companies or, or ventures they're building in-house by accident because of their size. So there's all kinds of risks and challenges there as well. Um, but I think the exchange of value, if you can get the relationship right, can be significant. Uh, and, it, and it does work. And, and then I think for big companies, you know, the idea of either partnering with a startup in a meaningful way or spinning a company out means that they can keep these things closer as opposed to, you know, not being as aware of what's going on in that ecosystem. 
And I think that that's a, a big opportunity for big companies. And then I think the other thing is it's, you think about it less as big company partnering with startups. Think about founders working with executives at big companies, because now part of the unlock is not just a commercial deal, let's say, it's actually the experience that executives in these big companies have, the knowledge, the domain expertise. And so you almost think of those executives in big companies as advisors. And they, gen generally speaking, love working with startups because of the speed at which they move. They love the idea of the innovation. Um, and so, so it's, it's also this opportunity of building a relationship between the humans, as, which is often as valuable, if not more valuable than saying, oh, I've got to deal with you know, a bank now and they're helping me distribute my product because that's a slow and, and challenging thing to do. But building the relationship between people and the insight sharing and the knowledge sharing, that is really powerful. That's a really interesting dynamic that I've I've never really thought about. Um, I'd be curious on the venture studio side of things. So you kind of have this playbook, this model for growth to get from zero to one. I'm curious about timing. So when you look at maybe other VCs that are investing at the earliest stages, they're trying to you know time the market and invest in things before they're maybe more mainstream. Do you have a different timeline for a venture studio? Like, are you coming up with like these net new crazy ideas or do you see something in the market and you say, okay, you know, like that's one or two years away from being mainstream and, you know, we can get something scaled up in that time. I'm just curious about timing from a venture studio model versus like a traditional VC that's going very, very early. For starters, most VCs don't invest as early as maybe they could or should, uh, you know, when a, when a VC says I'm a pre-seed investor, that's not at incorporation. That's usually products in market with some traction already. They're already actually at like they're, they're at one, whatever, you know, you can define one in different ways, but so there it's very rare that any institutional investors are participating at zero <laughs> company is five days old. Somebody's writing a check into it. So I think that's, that's one part of it. Um, but I think the studio model lends itself to uh, uh, going. Like, we're trying to build venture backable big companies, so that that's important. You know that that's still our ambition. But the model can lend itself to um, early exits, as an example, that are economic wins for everybody involved. Uh, so if you if you go back to the Go Instant example, I mean that company was about two years old, maybe a little bit older than that. It was an early exit, uh, but that changed lots of people's lives. Um, you know, so so in our model, in the studio model, um, because of how you structure these deals, because of the type of equity that you're taking in in the startups, um, you know, early exits are are meaningful, and so it, you don't have to go after something that you think, okay, your thesis doesn't have to be in 20 years. You know, everybody will be wearing you know, VR goggles, and this is what the world will look like and try to be, you know, a, a, a sort of an absurd futurist about things. You can tackle maybe more practical today, tomorrow problems and build really solid, sound businesses. Uh, but, you know, in, in baseball, sort of speak, you are trying to still hit some home runs, but some base hits and doubles can still be quite meaningful in, in the model. I, you know, I've, you know, I've been in the tech scene for a long time. So I think timing markets, very difficult. It's not something I've ever uh, necessarily been uh, good at. Um, it's the same with trends, uh, you know? So, so I think, uh, you know, I think it's, it's dangerous to be investing. Oh, you know, when Web3 is hot, you just go and do Web3 or, um, you know, blockchain's hot. So you just rush to do blockchain. That, that's really dangerous, uh, but it's, it's not uncommon. I think the studio model is looking for real problems that it can solve and that it can put some of the pieces together earlier, some of the ingredients. You know, if you think about building a company as a recipe, not a perfect recipe, it's not a formula, but a recipe, can we, can we start with some competitive advantages, some more ingredients at the table before we actually start that company? What would some of those ingredients be? Like, I guess... 
I'm always curious when I meet like a venture studio or, or someone that's been a repeat founder, there's obviously some playbook they have in mind. And again, it's not always exact science, but they have these kind of, they can see things that are working. They're like, that is definitely working. That is sort of working. So I guess what are some of the ingredients that you're looking for? A lot of it for us still, not surprisingly, comes down to the founder or the founders. At the end of the day, venture studios are participating so early in the, in the startup creation process. You know, when these startups graduate, think of, you use that term, graduate out of your venture studio, the success or failure of those companies is still almost 100% predicated on the abilities of the founder. So you are making a bet on the founders, no matter how much other stuff you put around those founders and support them at the end of the day, those founders are going to win or lose, uh, largely of their own accord. So you're still making a huge bet on the founders for us in our studio model. What that tends to look like is not necessarily repeat founders. So often it is first time founders, but it's founders that have a certain level of domain experience or expertise in a space. So you're relying on that founder's knowledge of a market, not exclusively, but a lot of it is they've seen something in the work that they've been doing and they finally get fed up enough to say, I got to go fix this. How do I do it? I start a company. Um, so, so domain expertise in the founder is one element for us that, that is often useful as one of those ingredients. Our own experience in the space is another one. So again, in, in our corporate work, you know, we're, we're, we're working in a whole variety of different industries and verticals. So I, I think we're a little bit dangerous in a few. And so if a founder is working in a space that we know something about, we have a network into, we've done work in that space before. That's another one of those ingredients for us that says, okay, I think we can connect some dots here, maybe better than other people could. Um, the team that the studio provides is another ingredient. So, you know, we think of ourselves as co-founders. So how do we surround this solo founder or founding team with the resources they need to build the MVP? They might not have a technical co-founder on day one. How do we help them with marketing and growth marketing? Because they might not have that expertise on the team. So how do we sort of backstop the gaps on the skill side? That's another ingredient. Capital is another one, right? So how do we put money into this thing right away when the only other sort of source of capital is usually friends and family, which is a, a viable source of capital, but you know we can probably put in a little bit more capital. And so those are some of the ingredients that we're trying to put together to say, do we believe in this founder and do, do we believe we have some competitive advantages that when we get this business launched, increases the likelihood that this thing is going to keep going and not die right away. I mean, a lot of companies still fail. So I'm not pretending that, you know, we're going to have a thousand percent batting average, but you know, how do we make sure we can put these things on the right footing and point them in the right direction? When it comes to one of the ingredients, like a founder, where do you find founders? You know, obviously Highline has built a brand and there's obviously inbound that comes now, but maybe like early days or maybe some other tactics that have worked. And then the domain expertise is very interesting. Are there other factors you're looking at with the founder? Like, you know, is it grit, you know, you know, or can they, you know, explain their vision? Do you see them as like a visionary person? Like is there personality traits? I know every founder is very different and success looks different in a lot of different ways, but I guess like, what are some ways that you're, looking at that founder and where do you find them? Yeah, recruiting is is really challenging. There is no great playbook for that. So it is a combination of networking, being in the ecosystem, knowing a lot of people and you know making sure that they point founders to us. So a lot of that is later stage, even though they might be pre-seed or seed stage VCs meeting lots and lots of people because that's their model meeting founders that might be too early for that but they see something in that founder or in that in, in what that founder is working on we send those folks to us because we, that's the stage we want to we, we're playing at so it's network it's relationships um we've done um outbound 
you know, reaching out to people that we think could be interesting. We've done recruiting. You know, we've put up job postings for what we call founders and residents. And these aren't jobs at Highline Beta. These are, you know, temporary engagements to see if you've got something or we've got something together that we could build a startup around. Um, the other thing for us is we occasionally we incubate some things ourselves and we do some validation work and we say, okay, we think there's something here. We should recruit a founder for this thing and see where it goes. But more often than not, the founder is coming to us with an initial idea or problem that they want to solve. Uh, but we're doing both, right? So sometimes we'll do a founder and residence job posting. We'll say, we're looking for somebody in these areas. And that means we've been dabbling in those areas. Sometimes we just say, we're looking for B2B SaaS founders because, and that's not a, that's not a vertical. It's just, we want to build more B2B SaaS companies. And then we're looking for founders and ideas. So they're recruiting us a smattering of ongoing tactics and you're sort of always in recruiting. And that's a really key part of it. You can't sort of, we don't do cohorts in our model. So we're just perpetually recruiting and talking to people because the timing part is also key. I might meet a great person. They're not ready to start a company tomorrow. Okay, that's fine. In six months, they might be ready. Build the relationship with them, get to know them. In terms of founder qualities, I do think all, you know, founders, I like to say founders are like comedians. All shapes and sizes, all varieties, all different types of, well, senses of humor. Uh, so it, I think about like that, which means founders are, could be, or should be an incredibly diverse group, set of people. For me, grit, you mentioned grit. I think grit is a key one. For me, it's determination and commitment. They are committing to, if this works, it's going to be five to 10 years of their life. So I often ask founders of all the things you could be doing in life, why this? Or another way of saying it is, are you sure this is what you want to do for the next 10 years of your life? Because uh, if you're not sure, what that means is when things go sideways and they always go sideways, those founders either check out or give up or bail. And I get that because it's not an easy road. So you're looking for, it's not just grid, it's this level of determination and commitment that says, I am going to figure this out no matter what. Uh, and then in our model, I would say in the studio model, a key part is this notion of coachability and leveling up. How do we take a solo founder who's never started a company before and turn them into a world-class founder? They've got to have, you know, the personality, the ingredients, the, but we can give them some of the skills if they're open to being coached and learning, you know, very, very quickly, I believe a studio can help level founders up uh, to be world-class founders and build world-class companies. But, you know, the studio becomes a little bit of that trial by fire, not, you know, sit around and read a textbook, but tr literally you're going to go build a company. You're going to own the, the bulk of it, but we are going to help you through that process. So that coachability how quickly they learn, how quickly they can adapt to things becomes very important. Have you found any kind of trend or, or prediction when you're, you know, like let's say you have like the initial product and, and you're testing it with folks. And I find this a decent amount with like the separation between like really great companies and just like a great product and maybe you can get to a few million in revenue versus like you solve the problem a little bit you know what i mean like you're not like killing this major problem that like everyone's scrambling to like get your product it's like maybe a few people have this problem and it turns into a relatively decent sized business versus like a big venture do you have ways around this or do you have kind of signals early on like hey like this is like something special is happening here versus like hey this is you know just solving a good problem it is tough to know early on I, I generally do like the idea of finding a wedge into a market. So that might feel like a small-ish problem that you're solving in a small-ish, let's say, with a minimum viable product or however you want to think about that. Um, but that at least gets you in the game because you don't know on day one if that's going to turn into you know what you're describing, which is big, scalable uh, opportunity or you know, maybe smaller, good business, but smaller. And 
so it's hard to know up front. Um, you know, I, I believe very much in, you know, going after a wedge, not worrying necessarily about market size on day one, because you could pivot, you could all, oh, like so many things are going to happen, but you do, you do want a big vision. So I think this is the balancing act that you're trying to achieve at this stage, which is you have to be able as a founder to imagine a world where you've actually had meaningful impact, uh, have a big vision for things, uh, be able to sell that vision to customers. When your product is small and does only a couple of things, how are you selling the dream? You got to sell the dream to investors, but you need to balance that with execution and iteration and learning and testing and all of the things and just get your foot in the door and then hopefully be able to grow and scale and adapt from there. So it is hard early on to figure that out. Again, another thing I like to think about and I talk to founders about is if you could be the world's greatest at something, what would that thing actually be? So that's sort of a question like, imagine you won. What does winning look like? And I don't mean that from an exit size or how much money you make, but you know, what was the impact you had? And so you can sort of work backwards from that and that vision of, okay, I want to be the world's greatest at X. Fantastic. What can we do tomorrow to take one step in that direction? And you're right. What could happen is you just take a couple of steps and then you run out of steam or you were pointed in the wrong direction and you can't adapt and you, you fail or you built a small business and it's a nice to have and you didn't quite get there. Uh, you know, we want to have that ambition, but sort of navigate our way to it in a uh, purposefully. So we're not just chasing things kind of random. What do you think about solo founders versus, you know, team of founders? You know, maybe let's look at the other extreme. I think it'd be a bit crazy, but maybe like 10 co-founders, for example. Do you find there's like a sweet spot there? Um, and if people are coming more, if you get more solo founders joining Highline, do you have like a roster of co-founders? And I guess it ties in nicely to like what we were talking about earlier in the ecosystem of like co-founders are usually like people in close proximity, right? Maybe they went to university together or something like that. Do you find like that's the strongest bond is that natural fit? Or have you found maybe this, okay, we, 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 have, we have a good science here or playbook. These people are pretty similar. They'll be a good fit together. Actually, no great playbook when it comes to co-founders um often the founders we're working with are solo founders not exclusively but it's often the case i don't have a problem with that i think you can build a successful company as a solo founder what we tried to do is you know as we're going from zero to one over that six to nine month period and we're starting to figure out okay well what is the product um what does this company really need from a resource perspective what is this founder really like and what what are their gaps where they could you know we could they would benefit from somebody else joining then we work to recruit somebody to come on board as a co-founder so that when they graduate again use this term sort of leave the venture studio they they either have a co-founder in place or they're close to having a co-founder in place so that's we sort of try to do the co-founder matching process while we're going from zero to one at the same time, as opposed to sort of doing founder dating right away and then matching people together and figuring it out. Other folks use that model. I find that model really tough because you're, you're sort of forcing a relationship very quickly. Um, in terms of relationships working, I've seen it all. Honestly, I've seen friends do very well. And then I've seen friends break up and then they're no longer friends. I've seen strangers get together, hit it off, and they're a fit, uh, and they crush it. I've seen strangers also say, I just, I don't know what I did. Why did I marry this person? I can't stand them anymore. So, you know, I've seen it, I've seen it all. Um, you know, there's a, there's a personality component to it, a, um, uh, a like what we want out of life component to it. So our job, I think, is to help facilitate that when somebody comes in as a solo founder. I don't like the rushing of co-founder relationships because I think that's, that's really scary because you're really connected to somebody in a way that's very difficult to break up. So I would rather it take longer, although the bias for most investors is that there be a founding team. So that bias is there. So if you're a solo founder and you're going through a studio or you're building a company 
and you're going to go raise money, you will see that bias. Founders, the investors will say, don't you need a co-founder? Where's your co-founder? I think you need a co-founder because that's the sort of belief is that that's a stronger way of building a company. And I think eventually having a founder is better. Somebody to jam with, somebody to share with, somebody, you know, when you're, I, I think of it often, you know, when you're down, your co-founder lifts you up. When your co-founder is down, you lift them up. If you're both down at the same time, again, that's, a, you know, that happens, but, but you've got that person to commiserate with and you're going to battle with every single day. The person you're going to jump on a grenade for. A lot of war analogies, which sort of a drag, but you get the point. So I think ultimately founder teams, if they work well, stronger than solo founder, but we can't pretend solo founder, like solo founders can build successful companies too. There is no formula for this stuff. So, you know, again, in our studio model, I say, look, come in as a solo founder, we're your co-founders for now. Let's see what you need as you go through this process and then figure out what we think is the best thing for you and what you think is the best thing for you, as opposed to say, oh, sorry, every company must be three co-founders. They must have these skill sets. That's the only way companies are built. That's just nonsense. I'd like to talk a little bit about that kind of graduation that you mentioned, you know, after six or nine months. What does that process look like? Are some companies kind of winding down at that point? Are some, you know, taking off and you have great relationships with other investors? Maybe they're raising a pre-seed or seed or whatever stage they'd like to call it. I'm very curious of like what that graduation looks like. Obviously, it's very different for every company, but how do you kind of know when they're ready? Um, and, you know, what does that look like? So nothing for us, nothing is shut down yet, which, which is great. Um, uh, that does, I mean... You can't really hang your hat on that for you know, for too long, but you know, today nothing has left the venture studio and then fallen over. So that that's good. Um, generally, for us, we look at that you know leaving of the venture studio model as a a point. Usually, it's based on fundraising. Uh, so you know, have you been able to raise more capital so that you can start to bring in the team that is going to replace the the team we've put against company so if we've got our you know um head of technology and a couple of developers that we're you know uh using that are um, working on a startup in the venture studio when you leave the venture studio and our team sort of peels off do you have the resources and the capacity and the ability to bring on the resources and we'll help with recruiting but, you know, so usually it's a fundraising milestone to say, now I have the dollars to, to bring on the folks that I need to keep this going. If something, you know, event, like, we can't have somebody in the studio forever because it is a resource intensive model on our side. So we can't go build 10 companies at the same time. And so if they can't raise the capital that they need to bring people on board and sort of transition that in a really sort of seamless and successful way, it looks more like that founder leaving the venture studio, we're going to continue to help them, certainly from a strategy and fundraising perspective, but it's less hands-on keyboard. You know, we're not writing code. We're not managing their ad campaigns, right? We're not doing all of those things that we might uh, normally be doing in the studio model. Um, and so if they can't get to a stage where they've you know, got the capital to bring on the team. Now it's really a question of that founder deciding, do I want to keep going with this thing? Not solo, but, you know, small burn, small budget until they can raise the capital they need to get to the next stage. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. I'd like to know your favorite book. And if you can't pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading or have read recently. You sent me this question preemptively, so I was prepared. Otherwise, I would have been stuck. Um, but I did pull out a book that I read recently. It's called um, Fairy Tales. Not, excuse me, Not All Fairy Tales Have Happy Endings. And this is a book by Ken Williams, who was one of the founders with his wife, Roberto Williams, of Sierra Online. And Sierra Online was a game company. And I'm talking, you know, not quite 100 years ago, but a long time ago. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, if you're listening, King's Quest, Police Quest, uh, Leisure Suit Larry, which is probably not safe for work and inappropriate today, but it was a fun game. 
created a ton, a ton, a ton of PC games. Um, and it's the story. It's basically Ken Williams writing the story of Sierra Online, which is like a crazy story pre-internet. Like pre pre internet, uh, and then obviously the internet came along, and you know. But th so, I like autobiographies um, uh, because I just find you learn a lot through the experiences other, as opposed to business books, which are more like here's the ten ways to do X. I mean, I wrote a business book, but nevertheless, uh, I, I sort of I enjoy from the stories, and I was a huge fan of many of those games as a kid. So that's the book. What are you most excited about in the next year, personally and professionally? They're pretty intertwined. Um, so, you know, in the next year, I think Highline Beta, we continue to iterate on the Venture Studio model. Um, and I think, you know, we're going forward, we're trying to learn from the things we've done, things that have gone well, things that haven't gone well. And I think we're going to continue to improve on the studio model. Our goal is to deploy more capital early into some of the startups, well, not some, but in the startups that we build to, um, to help them accelerate a little bit faster, have more resources to bring uh, to the companies that we create. So I'm excited about that. Uh, and then I'm also excited about seeing, you know, a lot of the companies in our venture studio are still early. They're still, you know, we're, we incorporated, we're in the, we're, we're, we will have incorporated three companies this year, I think. Um, but, but I'm talking like, you know, three, I don't know when this airs, but, you know, um, February was one company. Um, June was another company. July. So these companies are still just at their very early stages. So I'm excited about seeing the portfolio mature. Uh, not not exit necessarily in in the next year, but mature and level up and, and take their companies to the next level. That will be really exciting. And then just going back to building more companies. How do you deal with hard times? Do you have any strategies? You know, is, is it like fitness, meditation? Are you doing cold plunges every morning? Do you have anything that works for you? I'm doing none of those things. Um, <laughs> I'm doing what? what I heard fitness. I was like, no, not a strong suit for me. What was the cold plunges? I definitely do not do. I remember when somebody, you know, again, this is like classic Twitter, right? So it was cold showers. I'm like, you're out of your freaking mind. I'm not doing cold. I'm doing the hottest showers I possibly can. This is the dumbest idea ever. Um, I don't know what your middle one, maybe oh, meditation. No, I don't meditate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do not meditate. Um, so, but, but, but yeah, like I, Highland Beta is a startup. It's seven years old and it's still a startup. And we have plenty of ups and downs. And then, you know, imagine the portfolio, all the ups and downs going on there. And we're living those experiences with and through those founders every day. So lots of ups and downs. Um, I don't know. I thick skin, been around a long time, um, believe things will work out in the end anyway. A um, little bit of luck. I don't know. There's no, there's no secret sauce. Um, writing for me is actually helpful if I'm, if I'm being less um, silly about it, but writing, I think for me is a helpful exercise to get thoughts out. Uh, not bad thoughts, but just thoughts uh, to try to be constructive. So I think that's something that works for me, but no, there's no meditation. There's no, I don't even want to look at the steps on my phone today and tell you how many steps I've taken so far. It is sub a thousand for sure. And I know that's bad. I, I definitely agree with the, I can't get behind the cold shower thing. So I'm with you on that. Have you ever taken a um, cold shower? It's brutal. I, I don't, yeah, I don't I, care. Like if it invigorates you, do, you know, you do you rock on. I got, I, you know, what happens between you and your shower, that's up to you. But for me, that's not, that's not working, you know? And so. Yeah, um, yeah, it's not that's not for me. But I I do think you know, uh, mental health for founders is a real like that is a real thing that we do need to keep talking about. And you know, if if fitness is your thing, if meditation is your thing, if getting help is your thing, those are those are really serious. It's because founders, it's it's a tough 
you made a tough choice. I, we shouldn't pretend otherwise. No, you did totally make the choice. Nobody founded a company by accident. Nobody was pressured into starting a company. So it was your own volition that got you into that position, but it doesn't make it any easier when things go sideways. So I do think, you know, mental health for founders, for employees at startups that feel a lot of those ups and downs also, that's really, really important. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not going to suggest I'm more resilient than anybody else. I have plenty of ups and downs, uh, but you got to figure out what works for you. And then if you do need help, like you need to get help uh, because it's a tough, it's a tough game. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. I think that's fantastic advice. I'd like to open up the mic to you, Ben, to chat about anything. Obviously we'll link anything you chat about just for easy access. Uh, but how can, you know, if you want to talk more about Highline Beta, your book, whatever you want to chat about. See, like if I'm going to, if I'm going to do any little bit of self-promotion, it will be for my newsletter, uh, Focus Chaos. It's just focuschaos.co. Um, I had, you know, I mentioned, you know, earlier in this conversation, I had started blogging in 2006, pretty early days of blogging. And I was doing it quite consistently. I, I hit almost like a thousand blog posts over you know, a 10 year ish period of time. Like it was pretty, pretty um, intense, a lot of fun, met tons of people through writing online. Um, and, and so that was an awesome experience. And then it, it waned as I was, you know, getting uh, deeper into uh, startups and, and, and doing other things, you know, life, life takes over and I stopped blogging. Um, so I just started, you know, December of 2022, I decided, okay, enough's enough. I got to start writing again. New tools, you know, new tools, new social platforms emerge, new growth marketing hacks. So a lot of it is learning for me, which is always interesting. Um, what content works, how to promote it, you know, all of that stuff. And, and I think that, you know, even that kind of learning, just some of those dabbling in some of those skills keeps me sharp product perspective, um, help, you know, can help me provide more value to startups that I'm working with. So. You know, and I enjoy that. So I'm writing a weekly newsletter on Substack called Focus Chaos. It's about it's it's a it's a mishmash. I'm never going to be like, oh, I'm going to focus on one vertical. It's you know, startups, of course, investing, venture studios. Um, you know, it's a mishmash of stuff that interests me. But that's it's a lot. And plus one on that, and we'll and we'll link that. I also like your content on Twitter and 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 LinkedIn as well. That's really engaging. So. We'll make sure to link all of those things as well as Highline Beta. But Ben, this has been a lot of fun. Appreciate you coming on, sharing insights about the studio model. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.